Okay, shalom. And um, today, um, for technical reasons, the the classes at Lighthouse Project has been cancelled. So I am doing this recording today from my office, uh, the weekly class that I usually give at the Lighthouse uh, Project. Okay, so today's class is called "Aren't You Tired Trying to Fill That Void?" Going to the depths of self. So as you know, we always start with a modern-day issue. What is the modern-day issue for this lecture? It is to understand and connect with the ultimate depths of self. Okay, what's going on here? I'll tell you what's going on. In this lecture, we will discover that there are many levels to how we become wholesome with self. We each have to find a way to become wholesome with self to be able to find inner peace. So there are different levels. One is one learns to live with self. The other one is being one with self. And the last one is being self. So there's living with self, being one with self, and then being self, not just one with self. Now, for many, obtaining any one of these levels of wholesomeness would allow for inner congruency and inner peace. We'll be okay if we learn to live with ourselves. Maybe some people call that comfortable in our skin. Um, you know, being one with self, to thy own self be true, or being self. Any one of those would work. However, for many of us, and, and I'm going to say either it's because of hypersensitivity or maybe it's a backlash to how uh, we have ailed and desecrated our inner congruency and inner peace, or simply because of instead of growing up and evolving emotionally, the EQ, not just the IQ, um, with self, we have numbed our feelings and continuously checked out on self. So today, living with self or even being one with self won't fill that void no more, anymore. Not until they can live with being self. Not living with self, being one with self, but actually being self. So uh, let's see what this is all about. We're going to get into the esoteric teachings. Um, uh, it's based on a mimer that the Rebbe Blessed Memory delivered on this Shabbat in 1965 exploring the difference between the written letters of the Torah scroll ink on parchment and the engraved letters of the Ten Commandments on the two tablets of the covenant. Okay, so let's get into some introductions and then we'll be able to get to the actual uh, class. This week's Torah portion begins with, and let me read to you the verse. The verse says, if you walk in my statutes and observe my commandments and perform them. Okay, now, this verse seems to be talking only about observing mitzvot. Walk in my statutes, observe my commandments. Our sages, however, state, and I want to quote you what Rashi says, and Rashi quotes it from other stages. I might think that this refers to the fulfillment of the commandments. However, when Scripture says, and observe my commandments, the fulfillment of the commandments are already stated. So what is it meant with the opening words, if you follow my statutes? It means that you must toil in the study of Torah. So now we see that to walk in my statutes refers to Torah study, the letters of Torah. And then you have observed my commandments. And at the end, we'll see how those two follow each other. Now, in our relationship with God, there is a relationship that's offered through us only through Torah study that isn't offered through us through, isn't offered to us through mitzvah observance. Now, mitzvah observance is interesting. Um, uh, when my hands put on tefillin, uh, when a woman's body goes into the mikvah, 
So the tefillin is one item, my hand is another item, the, the hand and the tefillin do not become one. So the will of God encompasses. The same thing with a woman in, um, in the mikvah, the will of God encompasses her entire being, but doesn't become one with her. The water is the water, and the uh, woman is the woman. So in mitzvah observance, even though we're hugged by God, encompassed by God's will, and God's will circles us, nevertheless, only in Torah study do we actually become one. We digest, we actually digest what the words of God is, what the wisdom of God is, what the will of God is. And then in my weekly email that I send out, the newsletter, um, I wrote there about how we actually have today scientific studies that there's actually a change when we think about things and where, how we think, frontal cortex or reptilian brain, how we make synaptic connections in the brain physically, and then the amount of crevices in brain that science has found in those who are consistently thinking of creativity. And also they've actually found that the weight, the brain doesn't become bigger Einstein's brain wasn't bigger than anyone else's brain, but they have noticed that the brains of Einstein's and the such um, weigh heavier. So actually we digest and internalize what we think and what we study. So when we study Torah, which is the wisdom of God and the will of God, we're not just like the tefillin around my hand, the Torah is around my head, but actually it's internalized. We digest, we learn how to think differently, number one. Number two, when I take off my tefillin, it's not on my hand no more. When I close the Torah book, the knowledge is still in my head. An hour later, I'm busy doing dishes, and you ask me a question of what I learned, I can answer you because it's in here. So that's the difference with Torah. Now, when we talk about how we digest Torah, how we become one with Torah, metaphorically, we're going to return to the difference between the written letters and the engraved letters. And that's what we're going to talk about. So we have the oral law and the written law. The oral law is the words of speech. The written law is primarily, we talk about the ink on the parchment. However, in written law, there's also another dynamic, which is the engraved letters. Now, um, the difference is, and we'll discuss this soon, that letters of ink on parchment, two concepts, one on top of the other. Then we have the engraved letters, where the letters are part and parcel of the actual stone. However, we must also point out that there is the stone itself without the letters, which is in its full brilliance. We're talking about a, a precious stone. Okay, now another introduction I want to talk to you about is mobility. Mobility. Let's talk about the, uh, the verse. The verse says, if you walk in my statutes. It doesn't say if you stand, if you follow, if you live within. It says, if you walk. In Bichukotai, telechu, walk. Now that means on a deeper level, that we only associate mobility, walk, specifically with bechukotai. Now, the word bechukotai, which is how we got to the engraved letters, the word bechukotai means chok, means a statute. However, it can also come from the word chakuk, which means to be engraved. And thus, when it says in bechukotai telechu, mobility has to do specifically with the engraved dynamic of our relationship with the Torah, of our relationship with self, and our relationship with God. Why so? So let's just understand this. Mobility has a very specific definition in the world of Kabbalah 
and in the world of Hasidus. So mobility means not only am I growing and evolving, because angels were taught in the holy book of Yitzhira, book of formation, they fly, they move. And then what that means, what does it mean? They're physically, they're physically they fly, what goes on here? No, that's not what it means. What it means is that they grow and evolve. However, they only grow and, and evolve in their specific predefined personality, which means that the archangel Michael, Michael is the angel of kindness. So he involves and grows in kindness, but Michael doesn't become strict and justice. That's Gabriel's job. So Gabriel will evolve and grow within the dynamics of justice and strength, but he won't be kind because that's Michal, Michael's job. So because they are only within their predefined description of being, but within that That is why Abraham, which was the quintessential human being of kindness, when did he reach the status of grow was by the 10th test. Because for the man who is the quintessential embodiment of kindness, because God commanded him, he takes his own son and binds him on the altar, thinking that God wants him to actually slaughter um, Isaac, which is not what he wanted. But the mere fact that he was willing to do that from the perspective of leaving kindness and embracing for whatever reason he perceived this is the justice of God, the strength and strictness of God. Thus, that was the moment that he truly became a mobility, a power of mobility rather than the stationary. Until then, Abraham just grew and grew in love and kindness and compassion. Here, he was able to show that I can completely step out of my predefined self in my service to God, thus he achieved mobility. So when we talk about mobility, we're not talking about finite growth, which means I'm only stuck in my pattern, but I'll keep on growing and growing and growing. Rather, what it means is to be able to embrace the infinity of our beingness, where we can become the exact opposite of self. So now we need to understand why does that refer specifically to engraved dynamic? Okay, in Bichukotai Telechu. Another introduction. You know that science and the social studies have, have actually shown that human beings are creatures of communication. And thus, from that scientific point of view, we can really read into the verse in Genesis chapter 2.18. It is not good that man is alone to define the psychological makeup and social need of the human being. Human beings are in need of being in communication in a relationship. Now, interesting enough, how does the Torah define the human being? So when the Torah categorizes all of the, uh, all of the creatures and species of, of the uh, world, the universe, into four categories, it does so as inanimate, right? You have inanimate, plant, animal kingdom, the human being. When it says the human being, it calls it midaber. Midaber means a speaker. So much so that even when we talk about the soul of the human being, we refer to it as nefesh hamidaberet, the soul that speaks. Sometimes that's how we call the soul. So that means that speaking communication really defines the human being. And thus, we even talk about 
how the lowest level of the soul's beingness, not its faculties, its beingness, is really filled with letters. And thus we now see that this concept of letters is not just um, a communicative skill, but it actually is within the essence of our soul, the letters of communication. And thus we have in the soul itself, we have the written letters and we have the engraved letters. We talk about the soul as it exists in its source, in its beingness of being filled with letters. And then we talk about the soul as it descends into the 10 faculties of letters. We'll talk about this more um, in a moment, okay? However, even though we say that at the lowest level of the essence of the soul, that's the dichotomy there, lowest but essence, but yes, in the lowest level of the essence of the soul, it's filled with letters. However, in the very depths of the essence of the soul, there is, as we say, the stone beyond the letters, which stands in its own infinite brilliance. We talk about the soul itself. So you have here in the letters of the Torah, you have the written letters, the engraved letters, and the essence of the stone. In the soul, we have the written letters as a soul descends into having 10 faculties and functioning and the way it is engraved within its source. We'll talk about that more, but then there's a the soul itself too. Now let's talk about how the letters exist within God, so to speak. And whenever we talk about God, we use the word so to speak because it's all metaphorical, but let's talk about the way it is by God. So by God, there's the written letters. What does it mean? The written letters that means in the expression, the linear, expression of the finite light the infinite lights finite expression linear top and bottom not circular so when we talk about the linear light we have over there we've mentioned this in many classes we talk about the 10 emanations through which the infinite light communicates with the finite universe so it's like that was that glass stained window where the infinite colorless light shines through and now it has a red light, a green light, a, a, a blue light, a violet light, which is all the different 10 emanations, the way they function in colors. But the bottom line of what I'm saying here is that the 10 emanations are not engraved within the infinite light, but rather they're like ink on a parchment. So when we talk about the finite linear light with its 10 emanations, we're talking about the written letters not the engraved letters where the letters are part and parcel with the light itself. The next level, which is the written, which is the engraved letters, here we're talking about the infinite light, the circular faculties, the supernal crown, not the ten emanations, but the circular infinite where everything is equally naught. In that phase, when you have there the letters of the shine of the infinite light, we're not talking about an imposition of ink letters on top of parchment, so to speak. Rather, we're talking about where the light comes from within expression of the infinite light itself. Thus, it's as, it's as the engraved letters within the rock. And then, however, beyond the linear written, the circular engraved, there is also the rock capital R itself, the essence. So, uh, gotta be careful when I use this word now, but uh, we kind of see here that there is a truly holy trinity, but not God forbid trinity in that sense. We're talking about trinity of holiness of the Zohar. And let me quote you what the Zohar says. It says, three knots there are, which are knotted one in the other, 
the Holy One, blessed be He, Torah, and the children of Israel. Within this soul, within all of these three, there is the written and engraved letters, and then there is the stone itself. Okay. One more introduction. And that is comes from a teaching in ethics of our Father. The sages teach us in ethics of our Father. It says as follows. Reflect upon three things and you will not come to the hands of transgression. Know from where you come, where you are going, and before whom you are destined to give a judgment and accountment. Okay, the simple understanding of this Misha, well, before we get esoteric, the simple meaning, the Mishnah explains itself, and it continues. It says, from where you came from a putrid drop. It's talking about the semen. Where are you going to a place of dust and maggots and worms? And before whom you are destined to give a judgment and accountant before the supreme king of kings, the holy one, blessed be he. So basically in the simple text that the sin comes from ego and arrogance and entitlement. And the mission is putting, you know, a guy's station identification here. We come from a, our body comes from a putrid drop. It goes back to the dust and maggots. So is there really any sense of entitlement and ego here? So what really remains is the soul that's destined to give a judgment for the king of kings. So let's focus on who we're taking directive from. The egocentric body, I want what I want and I want it now, or the selfless, transparent soul. That's the simple meaning. Now let's get esoteric. So I'm going to break it into the three, the three statements. Know from where you come, where you are going, and before whom you are destined to give an accounting. So, know from where you come, from where you came. The godly soul, unlike other creature creations, which came from the letters of speech of God, everything came from the speech of God, the written, so to speak, the written letters, ink on top of a parchment, speech, outwards. And what does it say, the verse? And God said, let there be. And God said, it doesn't say in God thought. However, the godly soul, we're taught, actually comes from thought. It actually comes not from the speech, which is representation of emotions, but of wisdom. And that's very interesting because if you look at the words of this teaching from where you come, there's different ways to say from where. You can say in Hebrew, me'efa, but this one chooses to say me'ayin. Now, ayin means nothingness, humility. In the realm of Kabbalah, that means the first and highest of all the emanations, Chachma, because in Job the verse says, And the wisdom comes forth from Ayin, from humility, from nothingness, from absolute transparency to the light. Okay, there's no opaqueness in the vessel. So the first thing we know here is from where do you come? Take a moment and think, from where do you come? We come from the wisdom of God. He and his wisdom is one. Our soul, unlike everything else, it comes from the engraved letters, not the written letters. Now let's talk about the next statement. Where are you going? You should think about where are you going. What does that mean Kabbalistically? So the word for where, to where are you going, there's also different forms of speech. And for the different words of Hebrew, you'd be able to use the word where to where metaphorically. Uh, where do you think you're going? And it doesn't just mean physically. It can mean like where are you going in your mind? 
But the word it chooses, le'an, actually refers only to the physical wear. Ona moyadois, where are you heading to? Where are you going to, the verse says. And therefore the word le'an means you're going to the physical. Now, here's a question. What is going on here? We just said that we're coming from the highest of highs. Not just spirituality, not just emanations, but from ayin. And then we have to focus, where are you going to? You're going to your ultimate destiny, your ultimate destiny. I'm not talking about just in our lifetime. Remember that in the Jewish belief, when Mashiach comes, is going to be a resurrection, which means Moses, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob spent over 3,300 plus years in levels of levels of spirituality in the Garden of Eden are coming back here. Resurrection. So ultimately, where is God's goal for the soul to be is not in heaven, but down here. Le'an ataholach. You want to know where you're going? The ultimate destination is le'an, to the physical. The question is, why? Why would that be the ultimate? Normally we talk about this world as a journey, as a shopping center. It's actually referred to as a shopping center, the market. You come here, you buy stuff. You put on tefillin that's buying a mitzvah. You give charity that's buying a mitzvah. Helping another Jew that's buying a mitzvah. Studying Torah that's buying a mitzvah. This is in a marketplace. And then you take all the goods that you bought and you bring it back home. Where's home? Where the soul came from? Heaven. So what are we talking about here? Here we're saying, no, 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 no. No, it's not about getting to heaven. It's about coming back to earth on a total different dimension when Mashiach's here. But it's about here, back in earth. It's about the soul coming back into the body. Why? That's the third statement. The third statement is, before whom are you destined to give a judgment and accounting? And the answer is that the only place where you can find God, not the light of God. In the Garden of Eden, there is the light of God. The perception. The souls bask in the pleasure of their perceiving God. But that's the light. Where can you actually have a relationship with the essence of God? Not his revelation, his light. Only here. And that's what it says. You're going to the physical. Why? Because only there can you stand before who you are destined to have a relationship with. And that is the essence of God. The King of kings, the Holy One, blessed be he. Okay. So, we have here from a physical paradigm of written letters of separation. We must contemplate on how we are engraved in the oneness within our source. And then the ultimate reward is to become the stone itself, which can only be within the physical realm. I'm going to explain that for one moment, just so we can get now into the class. That was the last introduction. The soul descends into the dark. We're going to talk about this in greater detail. The soul descends into contraction after contraction so that the infinite soul, which comes from the wisdom, the ayin of God comes down and has to contract and contract and contract until into forming into a body where if I didn't eat, so I have a headache, so I can't really be in love with God. I can't really study Torah because now I'm frustrated and, 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 and I'm not feeling good. The whole, the hungry, angry, lonely, tired is going to affect my relationship with God. Imagine what that means to the soul, what kind of contraction that is. And it's all about that when I come here, I should remember where I came from. 
And thus, when I remember who my soul really is, it's not this contracted, diluted light and faculties that I'm experiencing, but rather it is in the oneness with God. It is engraved. The soul comes from engraved letters. Everything else comes from written letters. Thus, when I remember that, and I can focus on that in my lifetime here, when I can have that moment in prayer, that moment of clarity of who I truly am, a divine being having a physical experience and not vice versa, then through that I do what's right, and then I have the ultimate reward, which comes in the resurrection, where we're not even engraved letters, but the very stone itself. Okay, and now let's start the lecture. So as those of you who have been here before, you know that in the lecture I start off with giving a list of uh, mystical concepts that we have to discuss, and then we'll get back to the practical thing, ain't you tired trying to fill that void? Okay, here's the list. Written and engraved letters. Second, where we came from. Third, where we are going to. Fourth, absorbing the non-absorbable. And then lastly, let's eat. That's the last spiritual concept we're gonna talk about, let's eat. Okay, let the amazement of Hasidus begin. So, we can each pretty much understand the difference between the oneness of the ink and the parchment in a written, and you know, the ink peels off, it's because it's two things. So we can understand the difference between that type of oneness and the oneness of the engraved letter within the rock. The engraved letter in the rock can't crack and can't fall off. It can get dusty, you might have to blow the dust off, but it's there. So that's the way we understand it, and we don't need to really explain that. We understand the difference between ink, parchment, or rock, letters within the rock itself. But I want to share with you how it works when we talk about the concept of the human soul. So when we talk about letters, let's talk about it practically for a moment, okay? When I'm thinking, when someone's thinking, when you're thinking, you're actually hearing words in your mind. You're thinking with words. And now these words are like vessels, cups, to the intellectual concept or the emotional concept that you're thinking. So just like when I'm talking, you're hearing my words, and then, okay, what is he meaning with that? What's he saying? The same thing is with thinking. We think with words. We can't just think without words. We think with words, and then we hear what those words of thought are telling us within ourselves. However, then there's another type of thinking where you see a person really lost in thought. He's not aware of what's going on around him. When a person is on that level of thinking, he's become to a point where he's not hearing the words of his thought because the words of his thought have become so transparent and exist now within the actual context of the intellect, rather than having the light in the vessel, it's almost as if the vessel's within the light. That's how transparent it is. That would be considered engraved letters. So when I'm, when I'm thinking and in my mind I'm hearing the words that I'm thinking, that means the letters are separate, the words are separate, and that's written letters. But when I'm so deep in thought, where I don't even hear the words of my thoughts, I'm rather connecting directly with the light, the intellect. That's how lost in thought I am. 
Now we're talking about engraved letters. But then we take it up a notch. Within intellect itself, there's the letters. And then take it up a notch. Remember I, I said to you before that we're taught, our sages teach us that there's a dimension in the soul itself, not its faculties, not its expression, within the soul itself where it's filled with letters. And then there's a soul beyond the letters. So when we talk about the levels of written and engraved, it goes higher and higher and higher. And what it really means to us in our practical, in our practical concept, what does it mean to us? What it means in our service to God is how do we reflect? How does it reflect itself in how we are within our Torah study and mitzvot? How do we reflect ourselves? Is it that I have my life, but I also have this obligation, this Jewish religious obligation? So if I'm living that type of life where I'm me, but you know, I also, I, I got to pray every day and, and I have to study Torah every day and I have to do mitzvot every day. But that's not me. I just got to do that because that's what my creator is telling me to do. In that perspective, my experience and relationship with God is like ink on parchment. It's really separate, stuck together. However, if I can experience my religiosity, my observance of Torah and mitzvahs, my spirituality, if I can experience my relation with God, not as I am me and I have to do that, but rather, as the verse says, Ki heim we say in our prayers in the evening services, for that is my very life. That is the very days and lengths of my days of my life. And thus, my relationship with God is not where I am me and I need him, so I got to do what he wants me to do, pay my dues, and then move on in life. And, you know, now I have an entitlement because, God, you said if I do this, you'll do that. That's written letters. Engraved letters is where I'm taking it to the next step. I'm doing this not because I have an obligation to, but it is who I am. For they, Torah study, words of Torah, and the mitzvot are my very life. That's how it plays itself out. And then, of course, there's even the higher level where it's not even where it's my life, but where it becomes the essence of the rock. And we'll talk about that later, how we are truly a piece of God above. Let's continue further. So next, next concept, where we come from. So we spoke about it a little bit you know, in the introduction, but I want to get a little more practical. So in our morning prayers, we say something interesting. We say, I'll read it to you in English. My God. The soul which you have given within me is pure. You have created it. You have formed it. You have breathed it into me, and you preserve it within me. Oh, there's a lot of statements there. My God, you have given, the soul which you have given me is pure. You have created it. You have formed it. You have breathed it into me, and you preserve it, in, it within me. There's five levels here. Let's talk about this. What we are saying here is, that there is the soul the way it exists within God itself. This is where it is pure. However, it descends. It has to contract. It has to descend and descend and descend until it descends within my physical mind and my physical body. Thus, let's see now what the prayer is really saying. I'm going to skip the first words for a moment. So the soul descends into you have created it. That's the world of Bria, creation. That is where it develops intellectual faculties. 
You have formed it, the world of Yitzirah, the world of formation. Here's where it develops emotional faculties. You have breathed it into me, blew it out. And what that means is, we're talking about the world of Asiyah, the world of action, and that is the garments of the soul. It now developed garments, namely thought, speech, and action. And you preserve it within me. Now we're talking about the soul, the way it actually manifests itself into the physical, egocentric, gray mass within our skull. And over there, only God alone preserves it and protects it from our egocentric, narcissistic entitlement and coarseness. So that's where the soul descends and descends and descends. So what are we saying in this prayer? What we're saying is even when it's down here to a point where only God itself can preserve it, from my egocentric, I want, I want what I want, and I want it now. Even there, we have to remember that ultimately, we have to remember that the soul is not what we see down here in us, but rather the soul is truly, in its very essence, it is pure. Let me quote to you the words of the Soar. Engraved, it is engraved within the supernal purity. Thus, let's talk about what this prayer is wrapping up for us in the beginning of the day, what the goal is. The goal is to understand, yes, it went down and it contracted and all of a sudden it has intellectual and all of a sudden it has emotional and all of a sudden it has thought, speech and action and all of a sudden it's stuck within my gray mass, my egocentric sense of entitlement. But we need to stop for a moment and say, whoa, 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 what is the soul really? Tahorahi. It is truly a piece of God above. Let's go to the next teaching in the Mishnah. Where are we going to? Okay, so now the question here is, why? Why would God take a soul, such a beautiful, perfect, pure, spiritual piece of He Himself, and have it go through such contractions, such weakening, to a point where even the physical body can have a hold on it? Why? Why send it all the way down here? And now the answer is, and I quote to you from the Tanchuma, the Medrash, and I quote to you from the Tanya. He desired that there be for him, blessed be he, a dwelling place below. That's why he sent it down. I just want to share, whenever you ask why about God, it can't be that, oh, because through this God will gain. What do you mean God will gain? There was something God didn't have and he has now? That can't work with God. So we talk about the desire. It's a desire. There was no need. God has no needs. But the definition of desire, nisave, nitave, actually means the essence pleasure. There's no logical reason why. In Yiddish they say, of a taiva frekmanish kankashis. On a desire, you don't ask questions. Why does he want? He wants. If it's true essence pleasure, we'll talk about that soon, the difference between essence pleasure and not essence pleasure. But if it's an essence pleasure, there is no why. Nitaveh. Now here's an interesting twist to it. When you have a nitaveh, which comes from essence pleasure, that means it's not like, oh, you know, I wanted this. I thought it's good. It didn't happen. All right, we move on. No, no, no. When it's nitaveh, it touches the core of my being. Thus God desired. He placed his essence into one desire. Not to have his abode. His primary place of residence is not in the celestial, spiritual, infinite, and perfect, 
but rather down here in the physical, finite, dark. That's where God desired for it to be. I just want to share just a thought on, on what, what lies behind this. So as you know, the spiritual, all angels don't have freedom of choice. Because to have freedom of choice, you have to be able to choose evil. And, and angels don't have a yetzahara, an evil inclination. So really angels and all celestial beings of perfection are actually pre-programmed and have to run on their program. Which means, ultimately speaking, what they are and what they do is actually God's work, not their work. Because they are pre-programmed. Thus, the home that they offer God, that perfect home of glory, is actually God's work, not their work. Thus, when they said, God, give your Torah here, make it here. What, are you giving it to those imperfect human beings? You know what they're going to do with it. And God said, uh-uh. Because what you do for me is perfect, but not precious. You don't have freedom of choice. I made you the way you are. And thus you do what you do because of what I made you to do. But them, I gave freedom of choice. They had the possibility of being very dark, very selfish, very self-centered. And therefore, when they do something that's not selfish, that's precious. And like I said, because that is the desire of God, so ultimately speaking, God's light is in the spiritual, but God's essence is in the physical. Because here's where it's all really precious, and here it's where it's really all beautiful. So now we understand that to wear la'an atahola'ch is in the physical. Because we came from the spiritual realms of light into the physical realm and where we can have a connection with the essence. So what we're saying over here is that through our connecting to God physically, it's not just about the spiritual meditation. It's what I eat. It's how I dress. It's how I behave. It's what I do, what I don't do. Through the physical, I'm connecting with the essence pleasure of God. Thus, let's pay attention to what we're saying here. We're saying that the soul comes from the engraved letters. It has to descend down here into the paradigm of separation. And all of a sudden, we're living with as written letters. We have to keep on meditating meditating, and focusing and saying what we see and what we experience isn't real. We're not human beings doing divine things. We're a divine being doing human things. Who are we really but for a piece of God above? And when we have that connection and down here in freedom of choice, with the choice of being rebellious, with the choice of being defiant, we choose this time not to be defiant. Thus, we connect with the essence of God, not only the engraved letters, but now we become part and parcel with the stone itself, with the essence of God. Now the question becomes, whoa, whoa, whoa. If the spiritual realms are too, they're infinite, but they're too finite because they're only light, so they're too finite to absorb the essence. Are you kidding me? You and I, physical people, who like our steaks, medium rare or well done with a side of fries and it's got to be perfectly crispy or we're going to give them a who knows what to do. We're the ones that can absorb the infinite, this body, this coarse body that does what it does and wants what it wants. 
How can that be? The angel can't absorb the essence, the stone itself, and we can? Okay, I get it. We come from engraved letters, but engraved letters are letters. How can we say that this physical body is going to absorb that which even an angel can't absorb? That which even the great spiritual faces, as they call them, the emanations, the infinite will, the supernal crown can't absorb. But you and I, you and I, we're going to absorb this? So here's the answer. Now we can go to the next words in the verse. If you walk in my statutes, and what does it say right after that? And observe my commandments and perform them. What are commandments? Commandments ultimately is God's will. Thus you should know, says the verse. How can you absorb that which is non-absorbable? How can the finite absorb beyond the infinite? But the very essence is through doing God's mitzvot physically. When I physically do a mitzvah, I don't understand really, God, what do you have out of me wrapping up black boxes and doing the shuckle in the morning? What do you get out of this? What do you get out of me eating a filter fish, not shrimp? Didn't you create everything? I don't understand this. But this is your will. This is your essence pleasure. And when I do this, I have connected with the essence pleasure of God. When I connect with the essence pleasure of God, that becomes a vessel which allows my body to absorb the unabsorbable. Suddenly I'm able to absorb. I'm literally able to internalize within me a mitzvah of God. But I won't get to see what I'm really absorbing until Mashiach comes. That's when the curtain will be lifted. We're setting up the stage now, but we're walking around in the darkness. When you look up to God and say, God, this one's for you. I, I'm really not in the mood of it, but okay, you want me to do this, do the next right thing, I'll do it. You have just digested the essence pleasure of God. And from the essence pleasure of God, the finite and the infinite are both equal expressions of his beingness. And thus it's possible for the finite body to absorb the infinite essence source of the soul. And thus the verse says, in When you get to the essence level, you want to be able to absorb it. You want to be able to not have a total meltdown from the infinity. You don't want to go cuckoo. Yeah, I'm, I love being religious, but you know, I got to also make a living. I want to be, I want to be sane. Well, to do that, do mitzvahs, and that'll help you absorb it. And here's another thing. Remember I told you about mobility? When can the soul experience mobility? Is not when it is written letters, that's finite, that's shape and form. Not when it is engraved letters, because even though it's part and parcel with the rock, capital R, but it's letters. It's only when we totally go into the, the essence, essence, where truly a piece of God, engraved, we were engraved from the supernal holiness and purity, the actual essence. That's where we're infinity, and that's where mobility happens. Last concept, and then we'll go into the closing. What does it mean, let's eat? So you know how the joke goes, right? The joke about every Jewish holiday is they wanted to kill us, we won, let's eat. There's one holiday which there is no let's eat. And that's Yom Kippur. 
Now, you may be thinking to yourself, by the way, well, Yom Kippur is not about they try to kill us. Yeah, Yom Kippur is about doing Teshuvah, repentance for sins, where our evil inclination try to kill us. You know, people who deal with addiction know that, that the addict tries, the addiction tries to kill the addict. So, yeah, they try to kill us. We're hearing Yom Kippur. We're doing Teshuvah. We won. But no, let's eat. Why? Let's even make the question bigger. Yom Kippur is actually called Shabbat Shabbaton, the Shabbat of all Shabbatot. Now, on Shabbat, you're not allowed to fast. On Shabbat, which is all about pleasure, you actually have to eat. That's the law. You have to eat. Pleasure, not pain. So how can the Shabbat of Shabbatot be about fasting and abstinence? The exact opposite of what Shabbat pleasure is all about. Question number one. Question number two. You know, the holidays of the high holiday month works in climbing order. You go from Rosh Hashanah up to Yom Kippur. So how does it work that from Yom Kippur of fasting, you go up to Sukkot and Shemini Atzeretzim Torah, which is about eating and dancing and drinking? How does that become holier than holier than Yom Kippur? Okay, let's talk about this. So we explained that Shabbat is called Onek Shabbat, the pleasure of Shabbat. However, in Kabbalistic terms, we talk about it as Onig Moichin the Abba, which in English means pleasure of wisdom. It's a different dimension. There's a peace in the world that comes from wisdom, and that's the pleasure. Now, when you say pleasure of, you're already talking about a complex pleasure, which means the pleasure is derived from and expresses itself in. Thus, Shabbat, which is a complex pleasure, has to be with eating. Experience pleasure and express pleasure. However, if you up it a notch, the true definition of pleasure is not a complex pleasure, not a pleasure that is derived from or expressed through, but rather it is the essence of pleasure. It's just pleasure without a cause, without a reason. That is Shabbat, Shabbaton, pleasure of pleasure, i.e. essence pleasure, and thus on Yom Kippur, you fast. There's nothing which is going to... itself. I am a child of God. I am a child before my father. And thus I can do teshuva. Now the question comes. So we went from complex pleasure, which is eating on Shabbat, up to essence pleasure, which is Yom Kippur. What are we doing now? We're going up back to eating and dancing on Simchat Torah. So here's an interesting concept. According to Kabbalah and Hasidus, the first two holidays of that month, which is the high holidays, Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, are circular, infinite, encompassing, all-encompassing energies. The next holidays, which is Sukkot and the, and the Simcha Torah, is about internalizing it. Remember what you do with the Lulav and the Esrog? You go to all directions, you bring it back to your heart, back to your heart. It's about internalizing all that which is around us into us. Okay, what does that mean? That means that ultimately speaking, the pleasure that comes from abstinence, yes, it's not a complex pleasure. It's actually the essence pleasure. But an essence pleasure that needs to remain in abstinence is not the ultimate experience of oneness of God's pleasure. For God's pleasure cannot be stuck not in needing to eat, and not in needing to not eat. 
Thus, what really has to happen is to be able to internalize the essence within. Thus, we're now understanding that according to Kabbalah and Hasidus, higher than not eating and abstinence on Yom Kippur is to hold that Torah, not even open it up to study. It's an essence. Close it. Just dance with it. I'm a Jew. I'm a Jew. When's the last time I studied this Torah? I don't know, but I'm a Jew. L'chaim Hashem. I'm here to dance with you. I'm here to be happy with you on your day. That internalization of the physical, whatever you can perceive in the Torah is light. When you hold that Torah closed and you dance physically, you're sweating, you're dancing, you're singing. Oda vinu chai, we're dancing. That is the essence. That is the nit aveh. That is the essence pleasure of God. Greater than God's pleasure of the spirituality of Yom Kippur is the physicality of Simchat Torah. That is precisely what we said before. From where do you come? From spirituality. Yom Kippur. Engraved letters. Higher than high. Where you going to is somewhere even greater. Resurrection. Physical. Essence. The rock itself. Not the letters engraved within the rock. Okay. Let's close it up now. In closing. Once one has crossed the line in which living with self or being one with self cannot suffice. In other words, one can no more live within what he has made of his own skin than trying to fill that void through keeping it so hardcore just won't work anymore. For this person living true to himself and living with his understanding of God's needs to be driven by his deepest self in which he is truly a piece of God here below, that's what he needs. Gosh, this sounds so poetic and altruistic. I'm not just a servant of God, not just a child of God, but I am truly a piece of God above. But how is this made real and tangible for he whose life depends on it? Just want to pause for a moment. When we're tired of trying to fill that void, when it's getting too hard to keep it that hardcore, poetics, intellectual concepts, spiritual understandings aren't enough. Just to hear that, no, it's not just about living with God. It's about touching the place of you in which you are a piece of God. <coughs> Excuse me. Is that, that's poetic. What does that practically mean? I am, I am feeling empty right now. And I'm thinking of doing something so stupid just to stop the pain. No, I'm a piece of God. Well, what's that going to work? So I want to share with you. Next week, the 6th and 7th of the Jewish calendar of the month of Sivan, which this year coincides with June 9th and 10th, is the holiday of Shavuot. It is the holiday in which we celebrate the day that we receive the Torah at Mount Sinai. Now, the Rebbe Blessed Memory had a very interesting Blessing. You know, for holidays, he would give you a blessing. Obviously, Rosh Hashanah, Lashana Tova. And, you know, every, every holiday had its own blessing by the Rebbe. On this holiday, the Rebbe would say, You should receive the Torah with joy and internalizing it. Now, let's stop for a moment. Receiving the Torah is done how? You all remember, Na'aseh v'nishma. There has to be the order of we will do first, obedience, 
and then we will hear, appreciate, intellectualize, understand. So the foundation of receiving the Torah is obedience. Now, obedience is not about simcha. It's not about feelings. I'm happy that I'm doing this. And it's not about bipnimiut. It's not about digesting, appreciating it. Quite the contrary. Obedience is whether I understand, I don't understand. I feel or I don't feel. I got to do what I got to do. And I'm not allowed to do what I'm not allowed to do. Period. Thus, what's the Rebbe's blessing? Kabbalah satoira, parenthetically, obedience. No, the Kabbalah, the simcho, with joy and either it's obedience or it's with joy and, and uh, internalized, appreciated emotionally and intellectually. I actually just recently saw an actually written note by the Rebbe. I saw a picture of it where the Rebbe is telling someone that he should have Kabbalat Ol. He should have obedience, besimcha, with joy. How does that work? Let's go back to here. The answer is that if we see our lives as having to obey other people and other people's rules, then it can be a best with obedience, but not with joy or internally. Life then becomes a void. Just because we weren't born to the blue blood who gets to make the rules, we're stuck having to obey other people's rules. That's a void. However, if life is about having obedience to our inner depths of our being, obedience to who I am, when Torah and mitzvot is perceived as to thy own self be true, and it is so for in our innermost depths, we are truly a piece of God above. And God's will is our innermost, truest essence will and essence pleasure. Then there simply is no void to fill anymore. Obedience isn't about me doing what someone else wants for whatever reasons they have, be it even God. No. Obedience is about me being true to my own self and God's telling me, let me tell you who your own self is. You are a piece of me. And thus this way of life and this rules is not about being true to some God up there. It's about being true to God in here. Then all of a sudden there's no void and we don't need to keep it so hardcore. Thank you.